Welcome to the Recon Podcast. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the joys and the pitfalls of fetish, kink, and why we think we engage in certain sexual practices and sexual addiction. Today, I'll be joined by Silva Nives, one of the UK's leading COSRT accredited psychosexual and relationship psychotherapists, who's going to talk more about our sexual behaviors, how it can affect so many aspects of our lives, and how to begin getting help. Please enjoy the episode. Okay, so we have all been guilty at some point in time in our lives of using the expression or some term that sounds like, oh yeah, him, her, they, you know, oh my God, he's a sex addict or he's addicted to cock or he's addicted to ass. Or and I'm sure most of you might know someone, yes, like I'm running out of the gate with it. We're not holding back in this episode, you know, that some of you might know someone that you might describe as uh, someone who's addicted to cock of a particular race. Like I said, we're going to talk about it, you know, and I know that many of you have said it and even I've been guilty of saying it as well. Um, but when we use the term sex addict or the word addiction in this kind of sexual context, especially, what exactly do we mean by that? What specifically does it mean when we say, you know, oh, they're a sex addict or they're addicted to sex uh, or they've got a sexual addiction? Um, you know, because you like to enjoy something, sometimes someone might do a little bit more than the rest of us. Does it mean that they're addicted to the thing that they enjoy? You know, this came up in a conversation I was having with friends a while back and the debate really raged on about addiction versus preference versus habit versus what might be seen as a compulsion. Uh, and almost like a stroke of fate, a few days after I ran into Silver Nevis, which is the first time I'd met him. And Thus began a really good conversation about just this topic. And I thought, brilliant, we have to get, I mean, we have to get the foremost authority on our podcast to actually talk about this. Um, you know, and who would be more perfectly placed, I think, to shed light on this? You know, I've got far too many questions to squeeze into this podcast. So I think we're going to have to like cut back sometimes on a few bits that we might want to talk about. Um, but you know, I have a tendency to ramble, so I won't ramble too long at the start of today's podcast. So let's just get right into it and bring Silva on uh, to talk a little bit more about our kink, our sex, our kinky sex lives, this thought of addiction or compulsion behaviors, relationship therapy, treatment. There's a lot to cover today. Um, so let's see if we do. So please welcome Silva Nevis to the podcast. Welcome, Silva. Hi, thank you so much for inviting me. As you know, as I was saying just before we started like recording that, you know, I've read through several different biographies of yours. And I mean, you're quite accomplished and very achieved. And I think, you know, if people haven't heard of you, sometimes I, I now think like, what rock have they been living under? You know, if they haven't <laughs> heard of you or the work that you, the amazing work that you do. So um, I won't do it any damage. I would love for you to tell us more about you and the work you do. I'm a psychotherapist and I specialize in sexology and intimate relationships. I work with everybody of all sexual orientations, but I work a lot with gay men and with people who uh, struggle with their sex life and who have um, sexual behaviors that they feel is out of control. They call it sex addiction or sexual compulsivity. I work with, I work with all of that. So I think like it's quite, 
it's it's quite broad. I think what you do, but it's also quite encompassing. It it covers it covers a lot, but it also can be a little bit sometimes specific, which I think is really good because mm-hmm. when we think about sex, I mean, we can all talk about sex around the dinner table or at the bar for hours and hours and hours. Um, but what we don't often talk about is the issues and things that may be related to our sexual behaviors and, you know, our sexual compulsivity. Um, but I think let's let's go back to the beginning, you know, the idea of this concept or this notion of what is an addiction versus what is a compulsion. Can you maybe tell us what the difference is? What does it mean? Because I'm sure the two mm-hmm. things are very different. The two things are definitely not the same. And I may not be able to explain it the best. So can you explain it for us? <laughs> of course. Well, sex addiction is the term that most people use because it's a, it's a famous term, but it's actually not the clinical one. So what it means is that out of all the research that we've done on sexual behaviors all the way for decades and decades, actually we haven't found yet evidence that sex is addictive or that porn use is addictive either. So even though it's a term that's used a lot, it's, um, it's mostly used by, um, um, you know, ad- anecdotes really. And what it means is people having sexual behaviors that are repetitive and that they feel bad about. So, and that's usually when people start to identify as a sex addict or when they might go to a therapist to also use the term sex addiction. But sexologically speaking and, and scientifically speaking, it's not an addiction. And for years and years, we just did not know how to call this term in a scientific way because there wasn't any scientific guidelines for it. Because all the research really showed no evidence. So then we thought, how are we going to call that thing? And it's only in uh, 2018 when the World Health Organization, as part of the International Classification of Disease, they came up with compulsivity, sexual compulsivity, because that's the nearest to um, what can be clinically observed. So what it means is that it's not an addiction because the brain does not follow the typical addiction path as we know um, addictions do. But we certainly can see people having uh, sexual compulsivity or compulsive behaviors. The difference between the two is that an addiction is usually classified as a brain impairment. So it's kind of like quite like a brain, brain disease type um, uh, disorder, whereas compulsivity, it's an impulse control uh, problem. So it's really, really quite different because impulse control um or treatment for impulse control is really, really quite different from an addiction treatment. So if people are struggling with their sexual behaviors and they might be thinking that they might just be doing sexual behaviors that is making them feel bad or that is out of control, it's best to look at it from an impulse control situation and, and have the treatment that is not an addiction one in my opinion. Oh, that is a lot to swallow. I mean, sex (laughs) is an addictive and porn is an addictive. I think, I mean, hearing you say this, things like, okay, we all have to go back to the drawing board and reconsider our approach to how we talk about these things, you know, because it's just, uh, I think it's, it's enlightening that we are all so completely left of the reality of what we would think of as, you know, addictive sex or being addicted to porn. And it was interesting that you say that this sometimes comes up because it's something that potentially sometimes makes us feel bad. And I would 
you know, I, I would ask you the question, why should we feel bad or why do we feel bad about particular types of sexual behaviors or why do we feel bad about watching porn? I think most people, most adults probably do at some point in time. But why is it something that, you know, that we feel bad about? Well, you were saying earlier that a lot of people talk about sex around the table, but nobody really talks about sex from a place of awareness and from a place of real honesty. So people either sensationalize sex or they make it uh, shameful. And a lot of the time people don't feel uh, good about it or they feel bad about their sexual behaviors for different reasons. One of them could be because they have a script in their mind that is good sex or healthy sex should be like this or should look like that. But hey, I'm turned on by this other thing. Therefore, I have a problem. So sometimes it can be something to do with a moral incongruence. But some other times it could be that, that some people might just do, uh, have some sexual behaviors that they might do, that they might overdo occasionally on the weekend and then they might just be thinking oh gosh I've even done that that must mean I've got a problem and for other people it could be that they're actually breaching some boundaries that they've set for themselves so it could be either a boundary say for example of relationships or if they decided to be in a monogamous relationship but then they're having sex with other people behind their partner's back it's a breach of the boundaries and then they can feel bad for cheating so that's one way that often people will call themselves a sex addict is when they keep cheating on a regular basis and they seem not to be able to stop it. But sometimes it can be a boundary that's not to do with a relationship, but a boundary that's for themselves. So they might just be saying something, for example, or on the weekend, I'm going to have, um, I'm going to go to one sex club only. And that's what I feel good with. But then they end up, you know, going to, to like three sex clubs or then going to after parties or whatever. And then that's when they say, Oh, I've not done what I wanted to do. And therefore I'm out of control. So those are kind of some, some examples of how people can feel bad about their sex life and then criticize themselves or judge themselves for being a sex addict or having out of control sexual behaviors. I, you know, I like to think, you know, I, I remember having this uh, conversation with somebody else and then talking about when I first, I guess in my own mind, thought that I may have had an addiction of some sort. And, you know, and, and I think maybe most boys especially get there or most most males get there in their teenage years when you first hit puberty. And I remember just thinking like the first time I had an ejaculation, I went for the record in the morning before school, at least two or three times at school when I got home from school before I went to bed. And I think there was something that felt so good about it. And I understood like a, a long time afterwards that I had almost lost control. And I think this is where definitely I would say the compulsion became because it was connected to a good feeling that would come with the orgasm or with the ejaculation. And it was the sense of, for me, was the sense of wanting to feel that sensation or that emotion that came at that point, which is, you know, the rough of endorphins and it feels really great. And so therefore you want to feel that thing. And getting to that point at the end, I think for me, was at that point in my life where I completely developed a compulsion. But when we then think about 
the way that society tells us that we should behave or the way that society tells us we should feel about something else, you know, if I'm listening to you now, I'm also understanding this is where the sense of shame comes or the sense of feeling bad because they want you to feel, you know, like having a wank or having an orgasm or even having sex, you know, uh, in a very, uh, Christian heteronormative way that sex before marriage is deemed as absolutely sinful, you know, and I think this probably causes even more people to shy away or hide from expressing, you know, their true um, feelings about a particular type of sexual behavior. And the compulsion can very easily go out of control. You know, it's, it's really, it's, but, it's making yes. me think so much more now. That's right. And I think, though, that um, it, we're, not, we're not considering compulsion by um, something that we want to keep feeling, like a, a feeling good, and that we want to keep feeling good. That's not really how we, we look at that. We look at the compulsion as the things that we're not wanting to feel. And so by wanting to feel good, what is it? What are the other feelings that we're not wanting to feel? And that is really what is the impulse control and what creates compulsion is often that we use a feel good strategy to not feel other things. And so it's about, it's about the relationship between moving towards excitement, moving towards sexual pleasure, and also at the same time moving away other unpleasant emotions. So for people that usually want to keep feeling a, a sexual pleasure on a regular basis, like multiple times a day, by the way, when you're a teenager, that's kind of normal because you've got hormones raging. But, but later on in life, when you want to keep feeling sexual pleasure multiple times a day, it might mean because there are other disturbing feelings that you're not wanting to feel. And so that is really the, the thing to look at is, you know, what, what are the underlying disturbances that um, that gives the sexual compulsion reason to survive. I think it's a, it's a brilliant point that you brought up because I made a note on something else that I thought I would, and I'd ask it now instead of later. Um, you know, I think a lot of people think when we talk about our sexual behaviors or our, our manners or our sexual proclivities, you know, people often throw around, oh, you know, I they're experiencing or uh, taking part in some kind of sexual act because it suppresses something. And I'm guessing we don't often think about what that something might be, but I know a lot of people would probably say myself included, um, you know, that some of my sexual behaviors that I enjoy now as an adult, you know, might stem from some kind of childhood trauma or something else, you know, uh, or we would connect it to something that happened in our childhood, uh, you know, and they're absolutely convinced that this trauma is the reason why they've developed this uh, this feeling which may have led to the addiction or the compulsion of some kind of specific sexual practice. And sometimes I'm guessing it doesn't even need to be compulsive. You know, I, I know many people who are into particular forms of BDSM who, for them, they are convinced that, you know, their love of being spanked or paddled or caned was because of something that happened to them in the childhood, whether it was by a parent or a teacher or, you know, uh, so. Uh, in the care of some other form of authority figure. Um, and psychologically for many people, this is how it is linked. So is it really a specific kind of trauma, let's say that people are connecting with or trying to suppress when they engage in these sexual behaviors? 
I'm so glad you asked because this is, as you say, it's such a common narrative. And again, it's a complete myth. So people who are into BDSM and kink or some particular fetish, it's not necessarily because of childhood trauma. And there's been research done into this and there's just literally no link between the two. So there are plenty of people who have sexual sex, childhood sexual trauma, resolved or unresolved trauma, who are vanilla. And, and there are some people who are into BDSM and kink and fetishes who have no significant sexual trauma. And there are some people who are into BDSM and kinks who have, who have had some, sec- some significant sexual trauma, but the two are not necessarily linked uh, at all. And so this is really something to really think about because often the narr- those kind of narratives come from shame, actually. And the shame is that, oh, if you're not heterosexual, if you're not vanilla, if you're not monogamous, it must mean something terrible happened in childhood. And we really have to move away from those kind of narratives because they are shame-based, they are sex-negative, and they are actually not scientifically accurate. It's, you know, a while back we did a podcast around uh, shame, around king shame, and it was interesting. We we probably could have touched on this topic around, you know, the shame to do with sex much more than we did uh, during that previous conversation. Because I know when it comes to kink and fetish, you know, it's even more described as completely abnormal perversions, you know, that the kinksters are up to these devious things. And for most fetishes, what they get up to, be it in the bedroom, the dark room, the kitchen, um, let's not even talk about the bathroom, the things that we know that people get up to in bathrooms might seem really extreme to the outsider, but to the fetishists, it's pretty normal. But for some people, there becomes... I'm not quite sure how fine that line is or how close that line is between what we deem as completely normal fetish sexual behavior or kinky sexual behavior and where the line between normal fetish behavior and compulsive fetish behavior might be. Okay, so it's very clear that in terms of um, science and what we how we classify those behaviors is that there is no normal as long as it doesn't cause significant distress or harm. So basically you can have any kind of kink or sexual behaviors or fetish under the sun, anything, even things that are really, really unusual. But if it doesn't cause any distress or harm, then it's not classified abnormal. Now, the thing that's important as well is that the distress must not be because of external judgment. It has to be a distress that is felt from inside and the harm is classified as basically whether it's something that's legal or not legal. So uh, if you're going to have non-consensual sex, that's illegal. And so that's classified as harm. If you're going to have a fetish of, of uh, being dressed up as a clown and being spanked um, in the middle of a sex party and there's no distress, then that's not abnormal. So, so this is really the difference between, and I think a lot of people are confused with what is healthy and healthy and normal abnormal because there's so much myth out there about what is healthy and what is unhealthy. But the point is that so many things, um, uh, the, the, the sexual behaviors and sexual arousal is so varied that in sexology, we have not ever been able to find a, a consensus on normal or abnormal. So we're only looking by the, dist- by the distress and the harm kind of window rather than anything else because 
Um, one person's yarn can be another person's yak, and that's just really how it is. And the one way to try to think about it, to try to get our head around it, is by thinking of our taste for food, because this is one one area when we can all identify different tastes, but we don't shame each other for it. And so, for example, I really don't like oysters. I hate oysters, but I also understand that oysters is somebody's best luxurious food. Now, the reason why I don't hate oysters is not because I've had sexual trauma. It's not because anything happened to me. It's just because it is. And that's it. And usually people are not going to ask me and say, why don't you like oysters? What happened in your childhood? That must be so unhealthy behaviors not to like oysters. We just take it for what it is. I don't like oysters. You like oysters. That's it. End of story. And we have to kind of learn to speak about our sexual desire and, and arousal and behaviors the same way. If it doesn't hurt anybody and if it doesn't cause any distress to you, if there's no significant impairment in your life with your sexual behaviors, then it just is. Some people are turned on by uh, feet. Some people are turned on by custard. Some people are turned on by all sorts of things. It just is. I, I'd like to think that I'm pretty open-minded myself when it comes to the types of sex that kinksters engage in. And it's like you say, as long as it's safe, sane, consensual, legal, then it's, it's good. And I'm totally open-minded about the, and I would use in quotes here, frequency with which people enjoy their sexual pleasures. And I know frequency sounds a bit diplomatic, but I use this in, in a sense, I was not to judge, um, you know, and I mean, like for years, I'm, I've been one of the people who have been creating these safer spaces where people can enjoy their sexual freedoms and their sexual proclivities. You know, the people listening to this podcast probably know that for a little more than 16 years, I've been the events producer for Recon. So we create these spaces for people to kind of live out their sexual fantasies or their best sex lives and their best, you know, uh, to find their best time to enjoy it. And it's, it makes me question now, you know, when we talk about practices and things that people get up to, how would we begin to describe what is sexually healthy? How do you begin to define this? Well, I don't think that healthy is a good term because healthy also implies unhealthy. And as soon as we go to unhealthy, we go into shame stories. And in, uh, and especially in the LGBTQ communities, there's been so much, um, so much pathologization of our communities by being unhealthy, unnatural. Um, even, you know, we were a mental health disorder until not very long ago. And then we were a criminal offense too. So there is so much that's loaded on those terms. And so it's best that we can try to move away from those terms and, and replace them with what is satisfying and what is not satisfying. So if it's not, if it's, if it's legal and consensual, then you have to look at what is satisfying for me. And nobody can actually tell you. Of course, you can go and see a sexologist like me and, and unpack things and figure it out for yourself. But, you know, it's not, nobody can tell you what is going to be satisfying for you or not satisfying for you. So again, if we take another example, for example, uh, for me, I am, I love cheese. Okay. So sometimes 
I can call myself a cheese addict. I'm a cheese addict, but of course it's not in the, the clinical term. It's just something that I use to tell other people I love cheese very much and I love cheese so much. I love cheese so much that sometimes I can overdo it. And there are some days when I overdo it. And the days that I overdo it, I ask myself, Oh, why have I overdo did it today? And often it is to do with an emotional reason or it is to do with something else. It is to do maybe because I had a very busy week and it's, cele- it's a celebration. And all the times is because I'm just not wanting to feel stress. And so I just eat some cheese instead. There's multiple reasons why we might overdo something that we love doing. But then the point is that the original point is that you still something that you enjoy doing. And most times, most days, you find that activity satisfying. So you could... You could argue, of course, that the cheese is not a very healthy food and you can say it's unhealthy behavior. But if it's done most of the time in a way that is satisfying for that person and they're, and it's in, well integrated in somebody's life, then there is no issues. And it doesn't matter about the frequency. We do not look at healthy, unhealthy uh, or compulsivity with frequency, not at all. So somebody could be masturbating six times a day but if those times are in in the coffee breaks or in in the evening or when or when he doesn't have to push other stuff in his life that are important to address well that person masturbating six times a day might be actually having a really really good satisfying day well regulated well integrated and there's no issues and somebody who masturbates once a month could also have a satisfying sex life, well integrated and working, working well for them. So it's really not about, you know, uh, when you think what is healthy, what is unhealthy, um, what is right, what is wrong, what is compulsive, what is not compulsive really becomes really quite subjective to the actual person's life. You have to look at the person's f- full life and to check how integrated that is. Knowing also that even though sometimes it's really well integrated, occasionally some people might overdo something they enjoy and that's also normal but if it's repetitive like on a regular basis people just overdoing something and and most of the time they say i've overdone this i would have i wish i'd stopped earlier i wish i did something different then you look at it but not from the point of view of you have a disease more for the point of view of what is yet to be integrated what needs to happen to enhance the satisfaction and to reduce the dissatisfaction? I definitely want to come back to the topic of overdoing it. But before I get there, I have one more point I want to ask as well. And it was just triggered by something else that you just said to you. It was talking about sex and emotions. And I know for some people, you know, they it's easy to throw around the term, you know, like... Uh, demisexual and I mean there are lots of terms that will describe people's how they engage or how they approach sex or their sexual behaviors or their sexual uh, partners or sexual patterns Um, but I think the attachment to sex and emotion is probably greater than most people might want to admit and what I find very interesting maybe it's one of the other narratives that we also hear so often is about people engaging or developing a kind of compulsion to suppress emotion or to suppress a feeling or, you know, to, uh, as a form of escapism. Um, do you find that this is something that you come across often, this, this, this 
blurred line between sex and emotion and suppressing emotions? Well, I think, I think that, um, sex is a good way to manage emotions. Maybe not repress, maybe not suppress them, maybe avoid them. Yes. And, you know, uh, uh, but also managing them. So basically having sex for stress relief, you know, there's nothing wrong with that because it's one function of sex. So people have sex for sexual pleasure. Actually, in fact, um, a, a study showed that there was, that people had sex for over 230 reasons. Wow. <laughs> <And> Incredible. <laughs> yes. And it's not just for sexual pleasure. So it means that, um, if you, if you had a hard day and you had, and you're very stressed because of a impeding deadline and you're feeling horny and you're having sex that, that day to manage your stress, but it actually doesn't cause any problem in your life, apart from reducing your stress that day, then who says that should not happen? So, but the thing here that's important to think about is to sex as emotional regulation being one out of six or seven other emotional regulations so that people can pick and choose. Sometimes sex can become compulsive when sex is the only emotional regulation that people have. So if you think, okay, when I'm stressed, I can have sex. I can also talk to a friend. I can also have an ice cream. I can also go, go jogging. I can also sleep. I can also breathe. You know, all of that stuff then, then means that people have choices and therefore sex for emotional regulation does not become compulsive. And it can from that one, that one day become functional. I have definitely been someone who has used sex as stress relief. And I recommend it quite highly. It, it <laughs> works very well. <laughs> it works very well. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, I mean, if we think about it, yeah, I think there are lots of narratives that will probably come up today, but you know, you'll very often hear, you know, someone referred to as, Oh my God, you're so stressed. Why don't you go get laid? And so I think it's, it's a common, it's a common known thing. You know, that, that yes. sex is, I was like, why yeah, not? <laughs> that sex is a really good form of stress relief. And I think people should probably do it lots more than they currently do. No <laughs> one's going to judge you. If you, I mean, you come back from having a good shag and you're nice and easy to get along with, everyone will applaud you for doing it. No one's going to judge yes. you. So get as much sexual stress relief as you need. Yes. And masturbation works as well for stress relief. So it doesn't have to be partnered sex. It can be a really good solo sex time. Ah, this brings me to, oh, perfect. Perfect into the next bit. And this is also on the topic, on the section of, you know, the thought of overdoing it. Um, a while back, I had a really good chat with someone who told me about um, an experience that they had during the lockdown and developing a sexual compulsion in the lockdown. Um, but let's take a short break and dig into that little bit when we come back. something tight and shiny for a special event want ideas for your next session at regulation we're stocking thousands of products including leather rubber toys electro restraints and playroom furniture now shipping worldwide or get free uk shipping when you spend over 25 pounds visit our london store or shop online at regulation.co.uk Regulation Kink Delivered. Welcome back from the little break. Hopefully you've been thinking about uh, some bits that you may have learned or picked up, some little tidbits. Uh, and just in case you forgot, 
Sex is good for stress relief. Don't forget. Everyone's going to feel better after you've done it. Trust me. So the last point I was talking about before the break was about a good chat I had with someone who told me about their lockdown life. And, you know, they were explaining to me, and it's really interesting because there are two stories here. They were explaining to me that they developed a compulsion for wanking, you know, because they were sitting around at home and they were bored and there was nothing to do. And with cisgender men, it's very easy to just put your hand down there and begin. And, you know, he was explaining to me, like, eventually he says he realized he couldn't stop doing it. And he was doing it not just every day, but so many times a day that he ended up basically bruising and injuring his penis. Now, that is some serious wanking. If you're going to go to that degree that you end up bruising, your penis is bleeding. Sorry to get graphic, but he had to go to hospital and get treatment. And then, of course, it was it had come up that, you know, maybe he should consider seeking some professional help. And it was very interesting to me to have this discussion with him because he was so frank and so honest and so open. And I was really thankful that he shared this bit with me. Um, and it's also one of the reasons why I thought it was important for us to have this conversation. And on the other hand, it was similar with another friend who in the lockdown, out of boredom, and uh, I guess not so much out of boredom, but on the other way around, thinking to do the best they could to protect themselves during the lockdown. And so therefore they ordered toys online and got things in. And he ended up doing some very serious damage um, to his anus because he had developed this compulsion with the toys that he ordered so many different things and he couldn't get enough of using them. And he couldn't understand why he couldn't stop because I just had to have more and I had to have bigger and I just kept going and he couldn't. And it's really serious when these kinds of things happen. I mean, uh, uh, Silva, you messaged before, you, uh, sorry, you'd mentioned before about behaviors which are out of character. And I think knowing these two people really well, this is something that is so completely out of character for the them that I know. Um, and I wonder if you might be able to talk about maybe why this kind of thing happens to certain individuals. Mm, of course. You know, lockdown first is uh, something that nobody was prepared for. And it was an abnormal situation. And so, of course, then abnormal coping mechanism can surface out of abnormal situation. And a lot of people have resorted to out-of-character behaviors managing the lockdown. The lockdown was very, very distressing for very many people. And sometimes they had to up the coping skills and some coping skills became maladaptive. So, for example, masturbating to the point of injury is one of them. Or using sex toys, um, over, you know, overdoing it with the sex toys to the point of injury. Those are kind of the example, some of the examples of people just trying somehow to soothe the enormous distress that they felt. But also at the time, you know, not having any other resources because every, everything closed down, support, support closed down and everybody was trying to manage the best they could behind closed doors. You couldn't meet anybody. So it was, um, very distress, very distressing. And, and often what people only had left was those kind of uh, coping, coping mechanism. So of course, one thing that that shows is that although it was kind of an abnormal situation, these things also happen outside of lockdown 
for example, when somebody just uh, masturbates on a very regular basis to the point of injury, often that's because uh, that person does not have any other resources to manage their emotions or they've lost the resources or they've run out of resources. So one thing to do, rather than just calling themselves uh, an addict and trying to go for an addiction treatment, they will do better by learning new emotional regulation strategies. So that's really kind of like the first point of call to actually think, okay, what else might I be doing to deal with my distress or my stress or my anxiety or my anger or my grief or so on and on and on. And of course, for the LGBTQ community, a lot of the time is also finding good strategies to soothe the ongoing shame and the ongoing homophobia, biphobia, transphobia, racism, um, kink, kink shaming, and all of that stuff that, that we are experiencing on a daily basis. Listening to this, you know, we did a, during the lockdown, we had a campaign. It was called The Gear Stays On. And we then were talking about people being at home and enjoying their kinks and their fetishes at home, you know, gearing up, stay home, stay safe, and be cautious and do it. And it was really great. A lot of people participated and took part. We have so many people that wrote into us. And then we eventually moved into, you know, specifically for kinksters and fetish, uh, fetish people. Um, you know, we did a gear stays on social. So we did an online thing where we could come on board and chat. And we actually had panel discussions and other things. We did a cabaret, we had a DJ, and it was all trying to encourage people. And I think it's interesting when you think of coming from the angle that you're trying to get people to engage in what could be seen as safer practices while they were at home in the lockdown but somehow it completely escaped us that you know uh, for other people it was completely different they may have been quietly or secretly maybe sometimes not so quietly you know um suffering from a compulsion that developed during the lockdown as well in my line of work, you know, especially dealing primarily with kinksters and fetish people, you know, the narrative is so often um, negative when it comes to fetish sexual behaviors and fetish practices. And especially, you know, the what we now know is clearly compulsive uh, sexual behavior for kinksters. And I wonder, do you come across people or kinksters, fetish people that think that they may have a compulsion or disorder with something that isn't a compulsion, a compulsion at all. Yes. You know, because it's um, an area, a topic that is very misunderstood and pathologized or shamed very easily and very quickly, as we have just talked about earlier, um, a lot of people do wonder, um, you know, some people say, well, I don't get aroused unless I uh, practice with my fetish or I don't get aroused unless I do this BDSM activity. Am I addicted to it? And that narrative means that most people, therefore, should be vanilla with and the kink should be the cherry on the cake. Or if I can do kinks sometimes, then I'm OK. But if I do kink all the time, then I'm diseased. And that is that is a shaming story. What we know in terms of sexology is that there are two types of people uh, involved in the BDSM in kink. Some people that describe it as serious leisure activity and a serious leisure activity is basically something that is highly arousing that people can use as and when they choose to enhance their sexual pleasure, their sexual practices. 
And then there are other people who describe the fetish and kink as an erotic orientation. And that is quite different because it means that the kink and fetish is the core of the sexuality. And that needs to be present every single time they have sex in order to feel sexual satisfaction. So if you actually think about it as an erotic orientation, rather than uh, something that is too much or too frequent, it certainly changes the picture and um, in, in how you're going to be approaching it. So if you do kink and fetish all the time on a regular basis, it could be that you have an erotic orientation. You have to really go back still to the same things as we've talked about earlier. Is it causing significant distress in your life? Is it is it getting in the way of living the rest of your life? Or is it well integrated? And some people that um, cannot be sexually aroused unless they have the fetish, but when they do their fetish, they have a satisfying sex life and there is no negative consequences to it, apart from maybe feeling a bit of shame, which can be actually to do with society rather than them, then maybe it's okay. I'm so glad you mentioned that. And this makes me change my my framing just a little bit i will talk about something else first because i wanted to talk about the sexual dynamic in relationships and you just explained something to me so well that i never understood that happened in a relationship a few years ago i had a partner we were both like you know rubberists we we're both very keen rubber guys but it was very interesting if we wanted to if we were sitting on the sofa watching TV and, you know, we get a little bit hot and horny and we start making out, you know, he would suddenly shout, stop, 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 stop. He would have to go away and come back and he would have to put on or have wear some kind of element of rubber, some kind of latex element before we could engage. And it literally drove me nuts in this relationship because I was thinking, like, can't we just get on it for, can't we even just have a kiss and a cuddle and a wank without you having to do it? But we never talked about it to this degree. And so it was never made clear to me that, you know, for him, this was erotic orientation. And he never understood that for me, I wanted to have the balance of choosing when I would. And so we ended up breaking up, basically, because we could never really meet in the middle about how, our, when, how, when, and why our fetish lives or our sexual fetish lives especially would manifest. Um, and so this is why I would say too, like talking about sex in relationships is so important and so many people don't, you know, I think, you know, and as you said previously, this is why so many relationships lead to infidelity by one or sometimes even both partners who in their minds, you know, or the other partner thinks that I'm still monogamous, but they're out doing something else. And it's because they have not taken the opportunity to talk openly and honestly with themselves about their desires or their issues and figuring out how they can come to a solution that's mutually beneficial for both. I would absolutely imagine that in your job, you see this a lot. All the time, yes, and that's because people don't learn how to have an erotic dialogue with each other, and that goes, stems right back to the fact that sex education is so poor, and so people don't really 
um, um, pay attention or, or even are quite conscious that an erotic dialogue is so, so important um, with, uh, with sexual partners so that you can keep in touch with each other's erotic mind. You can keep in touch with each other's turn on, with things that needs to happen or can't happen or shouldn't happen so that you can then have a map together. If it's two of you or three of you or whatever, have a map on how you navigate your, your sex life when you, when you're engaging with sexual practices. Uh, you know, with other people. And that's often when, so, when people start to realize, oh, maybe that's what, that's what it is. We need to have more erotic dialogues together. We have, we need to talk about it from an honest point of view and without shame. And the more we do that, the easier it gets. Okay, let's have a scenario. A couple comes into your office and, you know, we're having a problem because we can't talk about sex. And this is for the people listening. How can people begin to think about how they bring up the subject of the sexual dynamic to the partner without fear of offending or shaming or creating some kind of anxiety, you know, or a feel of non-desire, a sense of non-desire, because there is a there is a sexual problem that we should talk about. How would you suggest or advise someone to begin to think about talking about this topic with a partner? Mm. Good question. I think before you even engage in the topic, you have to agree together that the space is going to be safe enough to bring that topic. And so for the, sa- for the space to be safe enough, you have to agree that there's going to be no shaming and there's not going to be yucking someone else's yum. And I think that's really important. So basically, it's going back to the analogy of food. And often I use the analogy of food because people really understand it in that way, because most people have had conversations about different preferences of food. And so, and so they, they, they get it and they can translate it to the, to the erotic language. And basically it's just to say, you know, you're going to be, you might be talking about different palette. You might be talking about different, different cuisine. You might be talking about different likes and dislikes. But just like you talk about what restaurant to choose and uh, what to have for dinner tonight is going to uh, acknowledging people's different tastes is going to be the same kind of conversation with um with your sex life but this can only happen if you commit that you're not going to be telling your partner that they're disgusting because of a particular turn on or that uh you're going to be threatening the relationship because you're going to be hearing something that is inconvenient for you thank you for that one i listeners i hope you can take that on board because i'm sure quite a few of you are are wondering Uh, about this topic. There's one more thing I wanted to touch on. I was chatting to somebody else about doing this podcast with you. And there is something that came up, which I know has been personal for me at several times in my life and probably for most of our listeners. And it's about issues around sex and performance anxiety, um, which can be, you know, the effects of some kind of trigger or trauma or anything else. And performance anxiety is something which is so completely taboo when people, when the topic of sex comes up, and especially in BDSM circles, in kink and fetish circles, you know, you cannot be a dom or a top or a master or somebody else who basically is suffering from sex, you know, performance anxiety. You can't perform. Um, I mean, this can lead down a slippery slope very, very quickly. We're afraid to be judged or to be seen as not worthy or not real. And 
how do we go about managing or dealing or coping with performance anxiety or rather overcoming performance anxiety? Hmm. Well, I think that the first step, just like the conversation we had about addiction, we have to learn to change our language and to move away from that notion of performance. Because any sexual practices, even the sexual practices that involve some kind of role play, which could be seen as a performance, is not a performance, it's it's sexual pleasure. And so to think about your sexual practices as sexual play, pleasure first, and not a performance, then that can take away the, that anxiety of performing. Because really, when you are engaging in sexual practices, whatever the sexual practice is, it is for sexual pleasure, sexual satisfaction, sexual gratification, and also connecting with your partner uh, on different level, on a neurotic level, on a sensual, sensual level, on a sexual level, but also on a spiritual level, uh, some people describe. And you do all of that by actually Connecting with yourself first and thinking about what feels right for you, what feels pleasure enhancing, rather than thinking, what do I need to do to perform well? Because as soon as you have the, the performance mindset, there is a failing and a success kind of mindset that comes with performance. You either perform well or you don't perform well. But instead, if you can think, what needs to happen today in my sexual practice to feel good about my body, good about myself, good about my partners and sex and pleasure enhancing? That is a much better way to engage. I think the question on, you know, learning when and how to approach or begin the conversations or the talks or even uh, about help uh, is going to be relevant for so many people. And I know that, you know, you're not just a practicing psychotherapist, but you've also written uh, a number of books. You're, you've published a number of books. If someone doesn't have the first initial, uh, I guess, uh, strength to go out and seek professional help, would it be wise to suggest maybe getting a good book, reading a good book or finding a good self-help books? How, how important are these things like in the written context to help, uh, to help people understand uh, where their issues may be and how they may begin to think about seeking help? Yeah, I mean, obviously podcasts like this one are really helpful. So a lot of people actually do um, report um, really getting some really good ideas and, and shifting their sex life to a better place after listening to some really informative podcasts that are sex positive. So uh, this is, you know, one good place. But, um, you know, there, there are not that many books actually out there that are uh, quite sex positive, unfortunately, but there are more and more now. And so, so that's really important. So if you want to know about compulsive sexual behavior, of course, you can read my book on compulsive sexual behavior. It's a book written by clinician, but I've been, I've been told it's, um, uh, easy enough for people, for the public to understand, um, to understand the problem. But also, um, there are some books now that are more books that are coming out that for, uh, trans, uh, transgender pleasure, for example, books on kink, specifically on kink that's for the public. So it's really kind of like looking, looking in the right places. If you just take a book, um, just at the top of the shelf and you're not really kind of, um, knowing what you're looking for, you could be actually having a book that could be perpetuating some terrible myth. So it's really knowing you know, what, what, what to look for. And that's the difficult bit. So, um, what I would suggest is that if you don't know, speak to people before you buy a book, 
seek recommendation for the people in the know. It could be recommendation from a therapist like me, for example, but it could be recommendation within the communities because if you actually look at, uh, speak to the BDSM community or the kink community or the fetish one, and they, uh, it's likely that some of them would have come across really, really good resources that you could um, you could also uh, use. I think uh, at the end of the podcast, once it's one is posted online, we'll try and get uh, a few links up to maybe uh, a few good books or some resources that people might be able to link into. So I'll definitely touch base with you about getting some proper uh, resources up uh, that people can use and hopefully they find helpful. Um, as we start to wind down at the end, you know, I want to say too, um, I was a few days ago at uh, a rally outside the uh, Tower Hamlets Town Hall, and it was based on, you know, saving our king spaces. And what was interesting was the amount of topic that came up about sexual practices and sexual behavior. It was really very interesting. And sometimes... I really feared that the world around us, you know, we've been fighting for our freedoms for 50 years and we've achieved some, we've made some really great milestones, but in some respects, I think uh, we are, the world around us is becoming a little more narrow and quite conservative. And I wonder if this is also maybe pushing people into corners and leading them to do things also rather than in a safe space where they're surrounded by like-minded people and they feel open that they're hiding and squirreling away with it and this may also be where sometimes you know the compulsion might begin um you know as a community of kingsters fighting for safe spaces to enjoy our freedoms you know without fear of judgment or fear of being able to well wrongly not perform but thinking about how we can best do what's going to make us feel good sexually, um, you know, without fear of being called a freak or um, losing a relationship with a partner um, or not being seen as sexually attractive. You know, we deal with a lot in our little kink community. And I think it's often that fear, maybe fear may not be the right word, but fear is often the thing that causes us not to be open and true about our desires and our joys and our pleasures and we don't talk about the issues we probably should and these are probably the times in our lives when we're likely most vulnerable and I want to challenge you our listeners to be more honest and open uh, about your your sex lives you know the celebrations the good parts the bits when you screw something up and it's not so great. I don't think we should feel ashamed because we are human and it's not going to be perfect every day. Um, and I especially challenge you to begin having these discussions with your partners. Um, for some reason, we're very easy to say what we want to say with casual sex partners, because this is someone you met on a, the yellow pages or something else. And you know, it doesn't matter what they think, but it's very different. And it's, I know the ground gets really tricky when we're talking about sexual issues with uh, a lifetime partner or, or you know with a with a spouse um our approach then has to be really very different but i challenge you to still find the way to approach the topic um you know at the end of the day 
it's, you know, understanding in our own sexual behaviors, this can lead to better or more meaningful connections and sexual experiences. And I mean, at the end of the day, isn't this we want in our fetish lives? You know, we want good kinky sex. Um, and now imagine that you've had these conversations and that good kinky sex becomes even better kinky sex. So please, let's keep these discussions going. Um, Silva, have you got any final words for our listeners? Yes, I'd just like to echo what you just said, because it's just so important. I think a lot of sexual problems come from shame, actually. And when we close our doors and we don't speak to the other people, shame festers, and then it can transform into sexual compulsivity. But it also erodes our overall mental health. So um, then we can easily feel start to feel anxious and depressed and all sorts of other things. And so connecting with the community, talking to each other, being honest uh, with each other is so, so important because that's the one best thing to reduce shame and therefore to have better mental health and a better sex life. So thank you so much for this, po this podcast and for um, inviting the listeners to really uh, be challenged with, with, uh, with honesty and with connection and, um, uh, yeah, I just want to say thank you so much. And a huge thank you to you too. Listeners, please give a huge thank you to our guest, Silva Nives. Uh, I'd like to thank you for listening. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode and I hope you can challenge yourselves to be more open about your sexual behaviors and the effect it has on your life and your relationships. We will see you again on the next podcast soon. Bye for now.